welcome to the Meaning of Home podcast, where we discuss the complexities and connections between home and homelessness. I'm your host, Sarah Christou, and as always, with me is the podcast's producer, Dave Angel. We are doctoral researchers at Loughborough University, part of the Harnessing Opportunities for Meaningful Environments Centre for Doctoral Training, for short, the Home CDT. We are a cohort of seven PhD projects approaching concepts of home and homelessness through a creative lens to develop impactful new research. Every month, we'll bring a new episode with a range of guests to provide commentary and conversation on different themes. In this episode, our theme is displacement, where we'll be discussing research on the impacts of policing antisocial behaviour on people experiencing street homelessness in England and Wales. Today, we are delighted to be joined by the authors of the research, Dr Vicky Heap and Dr Alex Black from Sheffield Hallam University and Dr Christovaney from the University of York. Dr Vicky Heap is a reader in criminology and fellow of the Sheffield Institute for Policy Studies at the Helena Kennedy Centre for International Justice and the Department of Law and Criminology at Sheffield Hallam University. Her research focuses on highlighting the experiences of antisocial behaviour policy from the perspectives of victims, perpetrators and practitioners. She gained her PhD in 2010 at the University of Huddersfield, where she investigated public perceptions of antisocial behaviour. Dr Alex Black is a senior lecturer in criminology, also at the Helena Kennedy Centre at Sheffield Hallam University. Her research focuses on policing and victimisation and the management of public space. She is currently undertaking research into the tools and powers used to regulate antisocial behaviour and their impact on communities. In 2011, Alex undertook a PhD at the University of York, investigating post-industrial urban regeneration in the north of England. Dr Christovaney is a research associate at the ESRC Vulnerability and Policing Futures Research Centre at the University of York. His research explores the lived experiences of vulnerable and typically marginalised in their interactions with the state. Recently, his research has become increasingly focused on antisocial behaviour, homelessness, drug use and drug dealing. His PhD explored the lives of young male hidden NEETs, those not in education, employment or training, and not accessing the benefits system. In your research report titled Living Within a Public Spaces Protection Order, the Impacts of Policing Antisocial Behaviour on People Experiencing Street Homelessness, you present how the Public Spaces Protection Orders, PSPOs, have, to quote the report's foreword, created vicious cycles of intimidation, dispersal and displacement, which merely recycle the homelessness problem rather than go any way towards deterring, let alone preventing the problems associated with homelessness. Vicky, can you tell us more about the context of your research and the use of PSPOs? Sure. Uh, so back in 2018, myself and a former colleague of ours at Sheffield Hallam wrote a paper about public spaces protection orders, doing a bit of a critical policy analysis. And following that, I think it was in probably 2019, I was contacted by the homelessness project officer from Oak Foundation. Oak Foundation is a global philanthropic organisation that helps to reduce people experiencing street homelessness. Um, and I met with Suzanne, the project officer, who's made, well, whose first question really was, how can we get a public spaces protection order, like just 
off the statute books can we get them banned and I was like wow where are we coming from here because there's a long history of public spaces protection orders which I'll I'll explain in a second um, but that really started the ball rolling and Oak Foundation entered into discussions with us we talked about the real problem being a lack of a clear evidence base to understand what was happening with PSPOs and, and so the project was was born really to try and understand how public space protection orders and other antisocial behaviour tools and powers were impacting upon people experiencing street homelessness. Now in terms of PSPOs, which is how I'll refer to them throughout, I'm sure the, the others will too, it's a bit of a mouthful to say, public space protection order. Um, PSPOs are uh, a behavioural order that are enacted by local authorities. So any local authority can introduce them and they govern a specific and defined spatial area. And that spatial area uh, is given a set of conditions and those conditions can either require specific behaviours or prohibit specific behaviours. So the requirements tend to be around the, the control of dogs, so keeping your dog on a lead, um, but the prohibitions are much more wide ranging. And that's where it kind of draws in people experiencing street homelessness. So there's quite a lot of evidence from across England and Wales to suggest that PSPOs are being introduced to try and prohibit behaviours associated with that group, such as people engaged in street drinking, people leaving belongings in doorways and shops. So generally these orders are within towns and city centres. Um, urination and defecation, drug use, uh, the scope of the legislation means that pretty much any behaviour can be prohibited by a PSPO, so long as it has a detrimental effect on the quality of life of those in the community. So that's really wide ranging. The, the types of behaviours that cause most concern for people like Oak Foundation and other charities surround the issue of begging. Um, because begging is, is a kind of overt sign of poverty. And a lot of PSPOs do prohibit begging in various kind of forms. So either defined as aggressive begging, which is, is never really pinned down in these orders, but is generally uh, understood as begging where people approach people in the street or if they stand around cash points, that type of thing. Or even sometimes begging with a receptacle, they've made it that broad. So it's like not just a cup or a hat, it's anything that can potentially sort of collect money. Um, and that that is seen as, as being quite contentious as well, because obviously people experiencing street homelessness often need to beg in order to be able to survive. So Oak Foundation were concerned about their use other human rights organisations such as Liberty have been concerned about their use for a long time and really the project set out to generate the first real evidence base of understanding around what is really going on but most importantly from the perspectives of those experiencing those powers on a daily basis who wanted to hear about the, experience, the experiences of people being policed in that way so within a PSPO and with other antisocial behaviour tools and powers that are used, which I'm sure we'll talk about as we move forward. 
but overall that was kind of the plan and i wonder um chris kind of moving that on what are the what are the um impacts then of like antisocial behavioral tools like pspos on people experiencing street homelessness well the impacts can be incredibly broad so if we look at it purely from a legal perspective the, the idea that someone who can someone who's homeless is someone who by definition is living in extreme poverty can be issued a fine of 100 pounds is obviously incredibly detrimental to their well-being kind of causes stress so there's the kind of financial aspect to it which is the most easy to understand financially if someone is on the streets they haven't got any money therefore finding them is uh, incredibly stressful or i would argue entirely pointless but then you've also got kind of the, the kind of more social aspects around it around kind of the issues around mental health and how how our participants felt when they're in certain areas so for example if so say for instance our participants are within a town or city center the fact that there's a pspo in in this city or town center creates a higher level of policing creates a higher level of anxiety and not and kind of impacts impacts their mental health quite detrimentally because they're they're under constant surveillance which is obviously incredibly problematic for the people that we're speaking to. Um, the impacts of that are incredibly broad, but generally speaking, yeah, it really hurts hurts them and damages their day-to-day -day lives. And then kind of from a, another perspective is one thing we noticed, which we'll, we can talk about in a bit more detail later, is that we're not just talking necessarily about public space protection orders, we're talking about a range of other um powers that are used against homeless people in certain areas for instance dispersal orders dispersal orders should only be used in a on a in a time sense time sensitive manner so over the space of 24 48 hours um to prohibit certain actions from taking place so they're they're quite they use quite a lot in regards to um stabbings and, and youth violence but what our research has shown is that quite a lot of our participants receive dispersal orders for spurious reasons for example some participants received a dispersal order for begging um some of them received them for no apparent reason in some circumstances and these dispersal orders meant that they couldn't be in the town or city center or the area in which they were found for 24 to 48 hours which has some pretty detrimental effects if they're trying to access forms of support whether that's for a homeless day center or if they're trying to get a prescription uh, for methadone for example and then Another thing that we we found in the research is that one of the thing, one of the things that is incredibly problematic is kind of very overzealous policing. So we find quite a few instances in some of the locations where the police and other authorities are overly abusive towards homeless people, particularly our participants. So we found that in some instances people were um, actually assaulted physically. They were verbally abused by the police. So there are a range of issues, kind of even so, like I said, just looking at PSPO, that's problematic. But what we uncovered is things that go way beyond the remit of a PSPO and actually shows the, the, the wider ideas of policing 
um, and abuse have some really detrimental impacts on the people that we spoke to across many of the locations. And Chris, kind of unpacking that a bit more, the research reflected that there were two distinctly different approaches to policing, punitive or performative. Um, could you tell us more about uh, how that was kind of presented and what you found in this in, around punitive or performative styles uh, in your case study areas? Okay, so starting off with performative. So in so in the in the performative areas, what we generally found is that there was a P, PSPO in place. The PSPO had um, had conditions which would target street sleeping homeless people. For example, begging, um, putting sleeping in tents, leaving possessions in doorways. For example, so the powers were in place, but broadly speaking the powers weren't used to their full effect. So we didn't find in these areas, we didn't find any widespread evidence of people being issued with fines or people being um, or be people being impacted massively detrimentally by the legislation itself. Whereas we found some areas which were very punitive. In these areas, typically what we would find is people being issued with PSPO fines and on some occasions dispersal orders but then we also find kind of as i described kind of wider issues around policing where where the authorities would be overly punitive towards our participants and just making their lives incredibly difficult uh, one of the one of the areas as well that we found was that well one of the issues we found was that many of our participants were put it simply just told to move on by the police and by other authorities on a regular basis. There wasn't necessarily a, a reason why they're being told to move on. They may be just, they may just be hanging around in a town or a city centre and a police officer would come towards them and they would just say, right, come on, move on, you've got to get out of here. And I think also as a researcher, I was, I spent a lot, quite a lot of time in these areas in, in one one area I spent the day literally doing interviews on the streets and you get a sense of what the area is like just purely by being in, being in that area and being acutely aware. So as a researcher, um, being an ethnographer, you, you go around places and you, you look for signs of police activity and you look for signs of, um, of kind of a general well-being of the streets being the homeless population. And in some of the punitive areas, it was very obvious that things weren't necessarily right and that the powers were being used incorrectly. As you were talking there, I was reminded of uh, another uh, area in your research that clearly highlights as well that um, this has a, a lot of kind of historical context in t as well in terms of the national austerity measures and the financial crisis since 2010 uh, and seeing an increase in the numbers of street homelessness, rising inequality, a worsening housing crisis and a reduction on local authority spending have all kind of contributed to this um, environment that's being built up uh, around the research that you've conducted. And that, in fact, has potentially hardened attitudes towards the presence of visibly homeless people who were repeatedly told to move on by the police. Um, Alex, could you talk more about 
what your research discovered regarding this continual dispersal and displacement? So as, as Chris mentioned, kind of one of the predominant ways in which people experienced any kind of policing interaction, and again, it's not just the police, of course, it's the local authority, community uh, sector, uh, community safety sector as well, um, was around being sort of informally told to move on. So by far, pretty much all of their experiences uh, focused on that, that request to move on, um, more so, you know, than actually kind of formal fines. Uh, although we did see some of those, uh, it was very much that informal interaction. Um, and, you know, participants, we asked participants what this interaction was like. Uh, and and it, 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 even in, in circumstances where it was relatively polite, uh, it was still the sort of same request, you know, you need to move on. Uh, you can't be in this space. Um, and when we asked participants, you know, well, what did they tell you where to go? Uh, very often it was, no, you just can't be here. Um, so participants experienced this a lot repeatedly. Uh, we had instances where people were being told to move on multiple times in a day, um, multiple times throughout the night as well. So people talked about trying to sleep and being woken up and asked to move on, which of course is hugely detrimental to people's well-being and health, particularly when, um, as our participants described, getting to sleep in the first instance could be quite challenging. Um, so there was that sort of continual movement, continual kind of uh, transience around those spaces. And even if participants weren't asked to move on, just by seeing certain policing bodies, they would get up and move on anyway. So kind of preempting that interaction, um, preempting being asked, um, which of course, you know, kind of reduces any opportunities for engagement and damages some of that potential to build positive relationships uh, with kind of uh, policing bodies or other service providers who might also be kind of patrolling those spaces. Um, and, and you know, the, the kind of the constant movement, of course, has sort of displacement, uh, uh, displacement effects as well. So people kind of moving away from places that they preferred to be in, places they felt safer, um, and also places where they might go to access the kinds of services that they would uh, typically access. Um, and that was made of, of made worse, particularly if they were receiving, as Chris just described, the more formal dispersal orders that meant they couldn't come back to that space for up to 48 hours. Uh, so some people described not being able to kind of access some of the, the supports that they would normally need because of that. Um, so there was, yeah, this is kind of constant transience around that space. Uh, but ultimately, participants would come back to um, where they began. So the problem just kind of got moved around uh, throughout the day or throughout the course of that week um, without really kind of addressing any of those key issues. I think that there's a particularly insightful point there uh, to kind of requote back that idea of, no, you just can't be here and how damaging that is to relationships through that continual displacement. Um, and uh, unpacking that a bit more, Vicky, um, could you talk us through perhaps some of the opportunities for meaningful engagement that might have been missed, such as signposting to support? Yeah, sure. So our participants talk quite a lot about the interactions that they had with various members of the policing bodies and the majority probably had the most interactions with the police. Now the police have to do a range of different tasks and deal with a range of different populations and um, 
by the sounds of the types of interactions that our participants had with the police, it doesn't necessarily sound like they formed a particularly good relationship between the police officers and people experiencing street homelessness for whatever reason. Um, so because of that, those interactions became quite antagonistic. And so, as Alex mentioned, people would move on when they just saw a police officer coming around the corner rather than waiting to be told what to do. So even in that instance, that's a missed opportunity for engagement of any kind, let alone a positive interaction. And then once uh, if the interaction did take place, sometimes those interactions were really not good. As Chris alluded to, there was um, quite a lot of uh, reports of verbal abuse uh, from the policing bodies. Again, this tended to be more from the police than any of the other policing bodies. Um, you know, just just being really horrible, um, being sworn at, um, being told, like, why aren't they in prison, being called a junkie, that type of thing, like really sort of inappropriate uh, interactions, which meant that, again, that's not doesn't really create a suitable environment for then someone to say, oh, actually, why don't you just pop over to the day, day centre over there because they might be able to help you with X, Y and Z. So I think, you know, the, the types of relationships and as, as both Alex and Chris have mentioned, these aren't one-off interactions that our participants had with the policing bodies. They were happening numerous times a day, every day of the week. So, you know, there were, there were kind of ongoing tensions between those two parties, which meant that any opportunity for meaningful engagement was lost because of the kind of bad relationship that had been built up over time. There were some instances of good practice in the sense of people referring our participants to you know all the standard services like the council housing office um, to the day centers and um, to maybe to drugs and alcohol support but I would say in the majority of cases our participants knew that those services already existed they're perhaps given a sheet of paper just with the details of the day center on and they're like well yeah, I go to that anyway so it was a bit kind of redundant it seemed a bit kind of tokenistic that Whereas the policing bodies probably thought, well, I'm doing my job here because I'm giving out the leaflet, but actually the meaningfulness of it wasn't really there because it didn't didn't carry any weight with it. So it was really a missed opportunity. There are instances where there was kind of some good engagement. We did hear about, you know, welfare checks being conducted by um, council officers that would then lead to referrals into systems, but that was few and far between really. I'd say the majority of those interactions weren't really a very good quality. So it sounds there, Vicky, like that you found that these interactions also perpetuated the stigmatisation of people experiencing homelessness as well, as you made reference to them kind of it being antagonistic or being uh, kind of called you know, druggies and, and other things as well. And like th this cycle of stereotypes that people experiencing homelessness uh, are, are kind of faced with on a daily basis. Um, and with that in mind, uh, Chris, if I could come to you on this point, um, is this approach actually addressing any of the underlying antisocial behaviour problems that these uh, policies were kind of originally uh, created for? 
uh, or any of the drivers of street homelessness itself? I think the short and concise answer to that is no. In some in some regards, not only is it not stopping antisocial behaviour, in some regards, actually, this is actually creating more antisocial behaviour. So it actually goes goes against what is hoping to be achieved by implementing public space protection orders in the first place. It's a very no- normal human reaction. If so, if someone kicks you and someone pushes you down, and someone treats you with disrespect, it's a very normal thing to act to react with animosity. It's a very normal thing to act aggressively or to try and annoy that person in response. So it's not necessarily surprising, but it is concerning when when we're talking about the potential efficacy of these types of policies. And I think we we see this with other social phenomena as well. Like if you continually treat somebody badly or tell them something about themselves that is part of... um, a stereotype that continues to reinforce that message to them. And Vicky, yes, you wanted to add on to that point as well. Yeah, I think another thing that our participants said was that they didn't, I don't think they really felt they could do anything else about that situation because they said, well, who would believe me? Who's going to believe me? Someone that's, you know, addicted to drugs, drinking on the streets. If I say that this cop has ripped my jacket, they're not going to believe me. They're going to believe the police officer. So they felt like they had no recourse to do anything else anywhere. They didn't feel like they could get justice from that situation. So their only potential opportunity to do anything in their minds was to kind of push back in their own way. Alex, if you could kind of unpack that a bit more and perhaps what some of the other findings were uh, in terms of the impact that these had on people experiencing street homelessness. Yeah, absolutely. I think whilst this wasn't necessarily the remit of our study, you know, the participants, you mentioned find places to sleep, were also being moved on by other organisations that weren't policing bodies in the way we think about them. So, you know, uh, trying to get to sleep in car parks and being moved on by security. So there were just a whole range of people kind of constantly telling them they couldn't be in those spaces. So whilst we were our room, it was very much looking at those tools and powers that are enforced uh, by those authorities. There were other organisations as well, other individuals constantly kind of moving them away. Uh, so making it difficult yet to find those spaces where they might feel safer. Um, and some of our participants you know, would rather sleep where there were CCTV because for them that was a personal safety feature, but of course made them visible then to the to the police who might be patrolling those spaces. So um, it, it was difficult in that sense. And one of the things we did ask them was about being kind of considered to be antisocial and how that felt. And that was quite um, impactful for them. A lot of them didn't think that they were antisocial, um, you know, p- personally as people. Uh, they felt that they were very social, uh, even in kind of begging interactions. Uh, you know, they might approach that in a polite and friendly manner and didn't consider that, but they recognised that they were being told they were antisocial uh, and that that had a detrimental impact then on their sort of sense of self uh, and, and kind of, you know, they described as you know, being kicked while you were already down uh, type of description. Uh, so there were, were kind of considerable emotional impacts of some of that as well uh, and that policing. So, yeah, so, so I think the, the emotional impacts definitely were up there. Um, 
and of course, yeah, not being able to find spaces that they could go to, uh, particularly if they were in groups, which a lot of them sort of wanted to be in groups with people. Um, but that drew a lot of policing attention. So being on their own was a way to not draw that attention. But of course, that left people further isolated then uh, in their experiences. And it sounds there as well like there's both formal and informal then means of displacement. So um, if they're being told by people in positions of authority, but then also other places and spaces that they go to to be moved on, that that kind of adds to this continual framing of them being uh, unwanted everywhere and anywhere and in terms of these continual interactions that they have in different spaces that they go to. Following this research you have co-produced guidance with Crisis ASB Help and uh, ASB consultant Janine Green on how the tools and powers from the Antisocial Behaviour, Crime and Policing Act should be used with people experiencing street homelessness. Um, Vicky, what are the three main areas that your guidance covers? I suppose before I go into that, I think the most important thing to say is that we wanted to make sure that the research that we did, the evidence base that we built, had some kind of practical output at the end of it. So it was really important for us to, to, to put together this document. In addition to that, we also recognised right from the early days and from those first conversations with Oak Foundation that we weren't necessarily going to be able to completely change the policy landscape when it comes to antisocial behaviour because it's got such a long history um, and it's wrapped up in so many... Uh, political intricacies so really our our main aim was you know if we think that PSPOs and the tools and powers are kind of uh, working a two out of ten level at the moment if we could just nudge that forward so it's maybe a four or five out of ten through this project then we've made some kind of headway and then see what we can do through the next project and the next project to kind of build further evidence to to generate further improvements really in the policy in terms of the guidance itself, we based it upon three guiding principles um, based on the concept of legal literacy that was produced by Bray and Preston Shoot. So we really wanted to make sure that practitioners were approaching these tools and powers by doing the right things and in the spirit of the law, doing the right things in terms of professional ethics and with an approach of rights thinking, so with respect to human rights and social justice. We then set about thinking about the various different tools and powers and how they could be improved. So we have got sections on how to improve public spaces protection orders, dispersal orders, another power called a community protection notice, which we've not really talked about today. But we've also got quite a significant section about informal policing interactions so trying to improve those day-to-day -day relationships between the policing bodies and people experiencing street homelessness to try and make sure that those relationships are as meaningful as possible to then facilitate that meaningful engagement with support services if people want to to engage and did you observe any good practice in your case study areas that 
perhaps you have been able to highlight in your guidance? The guidance was co-produced uh, with the, the organisations that you mentioned, but it was also kind of born out of our research advisory group, which was contributed to by various other organisations, such as the National Police Chiefs Council, other academics, uh, other human rights charities. Uh, and we've also kind of consulted more widely with the Home Office, DLUC, um, and so we try to draw on kind of their experiences. So some of the information that we've included in our guidance comes from those organisations where they've kind of outlined good practice. Crisis produced a document, a very detailed document in collaboration with the National Police Chiefs Council about how enforcement should be undertaken with people experiencing street homelessness. And we've tried to signpost to that because we don't want to reinvent the wheel. Um, so we've tried to kind of make a link between those two documents with ours focusing primarily on the antisocial behaviour tools and powers. But there was some good stuff going on in the sense of, you know, those welfare checks that we mentioned. Um, there were some, you know, random acts of kindness. We've heard about police officers getting hotel rooms for, for individuals. Um, we also heard about, you know, there was there was certain people in those localities that were either known as being like a good one and that people experiencing street homelessness kind of gravitated towards and that did engage with but then there were the other ones that the relationships were kind of a bit more tense so in a lot of cases it was kind of personality driven as well so it's kind of down to the individual and how that individual treated that person as to that kind of what that good practice looked like so in some of that informal kind of policing guidance we've tried to emphasize the importance of having a kind of local policing champion that's going to highlight the importance of building those relationships with people experiencing street homelessness in order to to develop um, a kind of community between that group um, and so that there can kind of be better interactions moving forwards. I think that's a pretty uh, interesting point there in terms of developing a community is that some kind of something that comes out uh, quite a lot in different aspects of research when it comes to both service providers or other interactions in terms of addressing street homelessness as well. Um, and interesting to hear also some of those more uh, informal practices that were going on. Um, Alex, is there, uh, is there like a takeaway message or something that you would want to highlight if uh, your a frontline officer or a staff member at an organisation that uh, has been involved in these interactions previously, what is it that you would want them to know? And what is it kind of that you, what would you, action would you like them to take? I think, I think it's about respect ultimately and treating people with respect um, and, and recognising, you know, taking that sort of person-centred approach, recognising them as individuals and, and differing individual needs. Um, there's a lot about kind of trauma-informed practice, and obviously that takes quite a lot of, of training and skills uh, and knowledge. Um, but, you know, at the centre of that is about being respectful and, and, and being open to people's needs. Um, so if I was trying to sum it up, it would be uh, around that uh, and kind of bearing that in mind for those interactions. Um, of course, there's a lot more that we would like in terms of people having resources and knowing where resources are. 
uh, and having a kind of a point of contact who who um, you know frontline workers and uh, officers could go to to get information about are there spaces can we connect somebody um, and I think that's probably more structural and more resource intensive um, but from an individual perspective yeah we'll be having that respect um, and that patience as well because people aren't going to respond necessarily in that first interaction as much as you might want them to um, it might take time to build that relationship. Thank you and yes Vicky you wanted to add there. Yeah, I think I think Alex makes a really important point there. And to build on that from an organisational level, we want to make sure that there's that cross partner agreement about what is the most productive and least harmful approach to responding to antisocial behaviour that is attributed to people experiencing street homelessness so that, you know, the tools and powers aren't used disproportionately then there needs to be a much greater degree of fairness and compassion um, through that system and hopefully our guidance points towards that. We end every episode of the podcast with a recurring segment where I ask each of our guests the same question. What does home mean to you? Vicky, what does home mean to you? So home for me is more about a feeling than a place. So feeling safe, feeling secure, having that feeling of familiarity. And there are a range of things that help to create that feeling. Um, primarily, it's the people. Um, family and loved ones but also belongings and just having your stuff around. Thank you Vicky and Chris what does home mean to you? For me it's interesting because up until about six years ago the concept of home just seemed so natural and it seemed like something that was always going to be there um, and then about six years ago, I did my first piece of homelessness research. And ever since then, it's something that I reflect on a lot. And for me, simply, it means security. It means security because the people who I spoke to on my first project didn't have that. And that's what I came away from that, that project really struggling with. The fact that these people who I was interviewing, these people, I felt a lot of um, compassion towards didn't have security and I feel incredibly fortunate to have security so that's what home means to me. Thank you Chris and finally Alex what does home mean to you? I think probably again in the context of the kind of research that we've been doing home to me is about autonomy having that space that is mine where I can sort of determine who is there and who isn't there uh, being able to kind of feel safe in that space uh, and do do kind of what I want to do um, and knowing that you know it, it's there uh, and it's there for me to to experience um, so I think that's what it means to me. Thank you all so much. That brings us to the end of this episode we would like to thank our guests Dr Vicky Heap, Dr Alex Black and Dr Chris Devaney for joining us and sharing their thoughts. 
For more information about our work, please visit meaningofhome.uk. Follow us on Twitter at meaningofhomelu. Remember to follow and share our podcast. And of course, thank you all for listening to The Meaning of Home. This podcast was created by The Home CDT. It was hosted by Sarah Christou, produced and edited by Dave Angel, and the music is by the Angel Brothers. All ideas expressed in this podcast are those of the individual. The Meaning of Home is brought to you by doctoral researchers at Loughborough University.